Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we are going to be talking with an inspiring person who is doing great work in the leadership and professional and personal development space. It is my honor to welcome Eddie Turner Jr. to the show. Eddie is an executive and leadership coach, best-selling author, facilitator, keynote speaker, and podcast host. Organizations who want to accelerate the development of their leaders call Eddie, who is the leadership accelerator. He is described as the consummate friendly professional and has worked for several of the world's most admired companies. Eddie works with leaders to accelerate performance and drive impact. Eddie is a C-suite advisor and national media commentator with years of information technology expertise. He is a published writer and best-selling author of 140 Simple Messages to Guide Emerging Leaders and is the host of the Keep Leading podcast. Eddie has earned international certifications as a trainer, facilitator, and coach. Eddie is a certified speaking professional, a designation earned by only 15% of professional speakers in the world. He is an alumnus of Northwestern University, where he studied leadership and organization behavior, and of the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, where he completed the Art and Practice of Leadership Development Executive Education Program. Eddie is a member of the global network of Harvard-educated adaptive leadership practitioners in the Adaptive Leadership Network and a leadership coach in the leadership circle. Eddie actively promotes the power of coaching and develops new coaching leaders through his work as a facilitator for the Global ATD Coaching Certificate Program. He coaches and trains leaders of all levels to develop and apply successful coaching competencies to transform themselves and their organization's development. He is also an emotional intelligence practitioner, certified to issue the EQI and EQ360 assessments, in addition to delivering the Emotionally Intelligent Leader Workshop. Eddie partners with clients to deliver innovative solutions, eliminate business expenses, and increase business value. I am excited to welcome Eddie Turner to the show. Eddie, thanks so much for joining us on Paradigm Shift. Tina, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited about our conversation today. So am I. So why don't we kick things off by hearing about your story from the beginning? And the beginning can be pretty loose if you don't want to get way too back into your history. <laughs> I'd just love to hear a little bit more about your personal and professional background and you know what really sort of led you on the path that you're on today. My personal background is that I spent 25 years as an information technology professional, 20 years, I probably should say, but I was passionate about technology. I loved technology and I, I still do. But one of the things I realized is that even when I was supporting executives and major corporations as an IT professional, I was always drawn to the executive space. And I learned a lot through supporting executives. And as I'm working on my second book, one of the things I, I say is I now realize something I did not know at the time, uh, that now I'm working as an executive coach, but I've always been an executive coach. And that was an epiphany that hit me in that I now 
work with executives in a different way. But even in those days of IT, when I was advising and, and, and explaining and leading them to solutions, I was coaching all along. So I, I now look back and say from the time I was 19 in my first corporate job at major corporations, I've worked in that capacity. At a certain point, I realized that what I was doing in IT had become commoditized. I went from being in a, in a role where all you needed were certifications. Right. You did not need a degree. So I didn't have a degree for many years at working in major corporations. And all of a sudden, while working at GE, a man who I just have the utmost regard for, he said that, Eddie, you won't go far here until you get your paperwork in order. Interesting. I bet that was pretty important advice. It was transformational advice. Because not only did he help me to see the importance of getting the degree and having a solid four-year degree, but he helped me identify where to get the degree. Because I went and I looked and I came back to him, hey, I found the perfect program. There's this place that's not far from my home. I can get this degree. They're going to give me life credit. I'll have a degree in 18 months. And he looked at me and he said, no. I lived in Chicago at the time. Mm -hmm. You're going to go to Northwestern or you're going to go to the University of Chicago because that's the only thing that we're going to respect. And I said, but that's going to take four years. <laughs> yeah, four years seems like a long time, doesn't it? Especially oh when you're gosh. working. Yes. When you're working for a major organization, especially like a GE, right? Or uh, as your company, McDermott. I mean, these major firms, there's just a lot of pressure and a lot of uh, an expectation in terms of performance. In IT, of course, every minute a, a major system is down, you're talking millions of dollars. And so the idea of how was I going to maintain the level of performance that I was delivering at GE and get a degree at an organization like Northwestern and sustain that for four years, I just didn't know how I was going to do that. I now know the answer to that is uh, very little sleep and lots of coffee. Yeah, I, I figured <laughs> you were going to tell me something like that. Uh, so, yeah, so it was difficult, uh, but I did accomplish it. And I, I look back now and those four years at Northwestern University changed my life. And I don't use the word transformational easily, but it was a transformational time in my life. Everything that is happening to me today was seated at that time at Northwestern University. So what did you get your degree in? I enrolled in a, in fact, it was the first time Northwestern was experimenting with a hybrid program, leadership and organization behavior, a degree completion program for working adults. So I went to the same school that Kellogg was held in. And so, yeah, my, my degree is in organizational behavior, or effectively the, the degree says general studies, but that concentration was leadership and organization behavior. So at what point did you decide that you were going to start your own business, which we know as Eddie Turner LLC? Was it during your time at Northwestern or did you experience some other professional experiences before getting to that point? Eddie Turner LLC is my business today. All through my career, even through working for major corporations like GE, uh, my first business was Turner Technologies. Oh, nice. So, as you can see, I'm not very creative in names. <laughs> <laughs> when you run out of options, you can always use your last name, right? I thought the alliteration was cool, right? Yeah, I so, like it. Uh, so Turner Technologies was the business I operated for many, many years uh, because you know, my dad 
Uh, I came from a steel mill family. So part of the reason I never went to college is it wasn't something that was emphasized in my family. Everyone left this, uh, left high school and went straight and got employment in the, in the steel mills in Northwest Indiana. And you could take care of a middle-class family quite well. And you would retire after 40 years with a gold watch and uh, a pension and, you know, you were fine. But that started to change during my dad's generation. And so he was laid off multiple times. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. And so it was difficult for our family. And, you know, my parents, it, it just was very difficult to support uh, the, the entire family. And so what my dad did is on one of those layoffs, he said, this is not going to happen again. I will always have a backup. And so he went and got a technical two-year associate's degree where he learned how to repair refrigerators and air conditioners. And so he started his business at home and he ran that business until the day he died. And every time from that point forward, anything happened, it can only affect us so far. And so he talked that to my brothers and sisters and I always have more than one thing that you do, but always do them well. So it wasn't that you're doing multiple things and you're kind of half good at this one, you're half good at the other. We had to excel. That is terrific advice. Thank you. And so with that advice, the, while working for those organizations, Turner Technologies was the way that I would go and deliver computer support to uh, real estate offices and hospitals and other little organizations that didn't want to hire full-time people, but they wanted a consultant. And so I delivered break-fix services. I taught at several universities. Purdue University for five years was the most notable. Uh, University of Chicago Hospitals, Wilbur Wright. So I taught for many years. And those two things under that umbrella, Turner Technologies, uh, was the first business. And then when I made the shift of leaving IT and started the leadership business, the leadership business would focus on speaking and coaching and facilitation, those three. And because I was the product, <laughs> that's why I named the company with my name and just made it a legal liability corporation uh, because I am the product. And how long have you had that business now? I will celebrate five years in December. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So your areas of expertise in your company include emotional intelligence, facilitation, uh, knowledge management, leadership training executive coaching, and personal development. Of these areas, are you able to pick a few favorites? And if you are able to, why are they your favorites? So I would say that I focus on three, uh, that I am a executive and leadership coach in one bucket. And the emotional intelligence is something that I use inside the, the, those buckets. I issue an assessment to my clients before all engagements and that their results become the foundation for which our engagement is based on. A facilitation is a second bucket because there are times instead of working with leaders one-on-one, -on -one, I work with them as a group and help them uh, through issue resolution, process mapping, strategy. I help them facilitate their, their, their outcomes that they're, they're trying to achieve or through learning facilitation. So there's a second side of the facilitation piece, what some people would formally call training. Uh, I call facilitation because it's a higher level of training. And then finally, there's the professional speaking. So leadership cuts across all three of those barriers, those boundaries. And I, I'm really passionate about each one for different reasons. And I believe by being a practitioner in those three different modalities, I avoid boredom and burnout. 
Well, and I also think that because a lot of these weave into the the others, and you know, each of these is not really two dimensional or linear; it's multi dimensional. My guess is that there are some interesting overlaps and synergies from one to the next. Yes. So, uh, and I kind of trailed off and didn't close the the loop on that. So, after giving working with someone one on one, then there's a bigger group, maybe. Uh, facilitating a group of 20 or 30. And then at times people want to have the entire organization uh, impacted. And so I do that through a professional speech where you're speaking to hundreds of individuals or thousands, depending on the venue. Great. So you had mentioned that you ask your clients as you are beginning an engagement to do an emotional intelligence assessment. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, we're, I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with a number of different constructs and frameworks and probably have taken, you know, personality tests and are sort of wondering how is an EI assessment different from um, maybe like a Myers-Briggs, for example, or some other types of assessments they may have taken in the context of their employment. There are, as you mentioned, a lot of assessments out there on the market today. And I think they're all they all have a place depending on what the practitioner is trying to accomplish with uh, their client. For me, I really became a fan of emotional intelligence. I first learned about it way back during those studies at Northwestern. And of course, that Daniel Goldman really made it popular. It's so popular that people consider him the father of emotional intelligence, even though he's not the person that really discovered it, but certainly the one that made it a household name. So, there is a company, however, named Multi Health Systems, MHS. They actually make the only scientifically validated emotional intelligence instrument that's available on the market. Uh, they make a lot of the psychometric tools used in the medical community. So I'm a huge fan of their emotional intelligence assessment, which is spot on. It's accurate because of the, the process that they've used to, for the scientific validation. So I use theirs, and it's important for a leader because most of us are familiar with the idea that we have an IQ, an intelligence quotient. And all through our lives, we are rewarded, we're praised, we're paid based on how intelligent we are. And that's typically based on a set of factors that say, ah, you're smart, you're intelligent, you're bright. And that number that it gets assigned, our IQ number, it doesn't really change after our teens. Well, Daniel Goldman uh, helped us to understand that, well, there actually is a number that can be assigned to our emotional quotient or emotional intelligence that is also a predictor of success. And very interestingly, unlike being fixed once we're in our teens, a person's emotional intelligence can continue to grow well into their 40s and 50s. And it is a tremendous predictor of success. Depending on the role, depending on the organization and the country and a lot of other different factors, it can be as little as 27%, but as much as 45% of a predictor of success. So I like to start off when working with a leader with identifying their level of emotional intelligence. And there are five areas. Their level of self-perception. How does an individual perceive themselves? 
Well, that typically will be shown in how they express themselves. So self-expression is the second area. The third area is their ability based on those two things to develop or not develop interpersonal relationships. Interesting. And to the extent that they do that or don't do that well, then they have decisions to make. The fourth area, decision-making. And we're not talking about statistical decision-making, right? Um, Two plus two equals four, mathematical computations. No, we're talking about the decisions we have to make when emotions are involved. When that person has gotten on your last nerve, what decision are you making? (laughs) Right. And to the extent that you do that, the fifth area, stress management. You're going to have some stress in your life. Your ability to manage it or not manage it is an indicator. So if a person is doing those five things well and they get broken down into 15 subscales, then we say a person is emotionally intelligent and they have strong emotional and social functioning and well-being. I mean, that's really interesting. And I, I, like you, I'm a very big fan of Daniel Goleman. And I actually read Emotional Intelligence back when it came out, which I think was around 1996 or 1997, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. And I just remember it really shifting the paradigm of the conversation around what success is and what, um, you know, I guess self-awareness is and really sort of shining the spotlight on what makes certain people successful and what makes other people have certain challenges. In the work you do, and I think it's it's marvelous that you start your engagements with people by, by doing this assessment. What have you seen in the few years that you've been doing this now? What do you see as some of the biggest challenges that people have when it comes to various facets of what is considered emotional intelligence? Well, the biggest difference that I see, something I see pretty typically is that this is when a leader takes this assessment, it's the first time they come face to face with who they really are versus who they think they are. And it's quite uh, informative for others, for some, and for others, it's quite disappointing. Because this is the first time that they can't say that this is just what someone else is saying about me. No, this is a self-reporting tool. This is what you said about you. And so when people look at that, then they're able to see which area that they either are affirmed in, where they're doing really well, and let's help you to continue to do these things, or areas where they can grow. For some people, uh, we see that maybe empathy is a challenge. They lack empathy. So we explore, well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? We know at one point, I'll never forget the famous uh, politician that said, empathy, well, who wants that? Uh, We don't need any empathy. Uh, I I also had a military uh, person, uh, general that I was working with not long ago. He said something quite similar to me. So in some cases, it's been looked at as a a dirty word. This is Mm -hmm. a bad thing. This is a poor quality to have. Well, when we're working with emotional intelligence, we start to understand the power of understanding not only our own emotions as an individual and as a leader, but how that affects others. But then this ability to empathize, or as one of the best definitions I ever read said, the ability to have your pain in my heart. I like that. I don't think I've ever heard that. That's a really wonderful description. Yeah, because if I can get to the point where when you feel something, it's hurting you, that I can take it on so closely that I feel it inside of me, I'm going to do more than just say, oh, Tina, too bad, too sad, 
right? No, right. I'll be moved to assist you. I'll be moved to within my power do something to 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 make that pain go away, to ameliorate it. And so uh, that's just one example of one of the one of the qualities, right? But in others, it, it may be this this area of uh, assertiveness. I do a lot of work with female leaders, and uh, sometimes uh, there's this two-edged sword. Uh, if a woman is too assertive, then she's accused of being a certain way and certain words are used that are inappropriate. Uh, but then because of that, some may pull back. And so they lack assertiveness. And so we, we dig into that and we go through uh, some of the uh, tools that a leader can use to have the right level of assertiveness, to be effective, to be heard, and to drive impact in an organization. So why don't we talk a little, and that's really fascinating. And I think everything that you just said really resonates, especially with respect to women and leaders. And I'm going to have to have you back on the show some point soon, because I would really love to further explore that whole topic of the unique challenges as well as advantages that women have, especially when they are part of a leadership team. And they're not only trying to define who they are as individual leaders, but also in the context of a bigger leadership team, for example, part of the C-suite. But in any event, looking at the executive coaching that you do for a moment, I would love to hear your thoughts on how one can go about finding the right coach. There are so many executive coaches out there, and I think it's a good thing that people, um, I think with the emotional intelligence conversation, the um, leadership conversation, and just really trying to get all of us collectively to the next level of, of leadership, at least there are conversations now and more resources available than I think there were a few years ago in the area of executive coaching. With so many choices out there, how do you think people should go about finding the right coach for them? And what do you think are some of the challenges facing professionals today that executive coaching can help them with? I worked for a executive. He was the COO, I believe, of, uh, the, of an organization in all, all services. And he said to me at one point, when I talked about becoming a coach and making my transition from doing uh, the work that I was doing, he said, ah, coaches, that's, those are just a bunch of unemployed HR people. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that's what his reaction was. So he didn't really value coaches. And then you know, I, I started to realize that in the field that that was one view that anybody can call themselves a coach is essentially what he was saying. And this is what I call myself until I have a, a job that's more appropriate. And then there's those who feel like, well, uh, coaching is something where, where it's what we see in athletics, where it's, it's a directive this person is telling. So uh, when, when we think about where can a professional find a good coach, I would say that there's an organization that has done a lot to professionalize coaching to where it is a legitimate field. It is a field where people are uh, highly trained and they have to go through a rigorous process to become a credentialed coach. Uh, And so I would point to the International Coach Federation, uh, for which I am a member. Uh, It's in, I want to say, 140 different countries at this point and has about 27,000 different credential coaches. So pretty much anywhere you look, you are almost certain to find an ICF coach. Now, ICF for many years only had uh, one credential, and that was the top credential, a master certified coach. And so if you're looking for the best of the best, 
then it would be a master certified coach, but that's only about 1% of the coaches in the world. Uh, the second credential that they made was the PCC, the professional certified coach. And there are a lot of professional certified coaches. And so I would uh, I encourage a person to look there. And of course, finally is the third tier, which is ACC. That's the first level of, of certification uh, that they offer. So I believe that any level of ICF coach is an effective coach to start with because you know they've been trained, they've been vetted uh, by a third party. And uh, that's a good place to start. Now, Outside of that, there are other organizations. The MECO organization, they measure the effectiveness of executive coaching. They have a designation uh, that they offer for coaches as well. And uh, in Europe, there is the European Mentoring and Coaching Council. And so if for your international audience, they might be considering that as a, as a third option. But I would definitely start with ICM. And so outside of the coaching credential, I would say the person should look for that. Uh, is there a certain level of business expertise that you want a person to have? Is there a level of educational attainment that you want? I know some people, they only want to have a PhD uh, client. I had a client not, not long ago. They said, well, I prefer to have a PhD or I have some attorneys. They prefer to have an attorney. And so uh, that might be another consideration. On that, however, I would caution someone that uh, one of the beauties about coaching is the coach does not have to have perform the exact same task as the client they're coaching. I coach a lot of CEOs. I coach a lot of, I'll say CXO, uh, because you have uh, COO, CEO, CFO, CDO. I, I mm -hmm. learned that yesterday with somebody. So a lot of executive spaces, there are 30 CXO, CX titles. So, uh, or anybody in an organization that's a director above is considered an executive coaching client. And so, uh, you don't have to perform those duties. The coach is the expert in the process, not the content. And quite frankly, I find I do better when I don't know what the client has done. When I'm working with an IT person or other areas where I have expertise, you know, in my mind, I have to keep turning off the answer. Right, exactly. <laughs> right? Because as a coach, I need to stay in inquiry. I need to stay deeply curious. And so if I'm assigning meaning and going, oh, yeah, this is just like that time or this is just like this solution, you know, I'm not going to be assisting my client. And so fundamentally, a, a great coach will bring the process expertise and not the content expertise. Now, that's different if a person wants a business coach. If you want a business coach, then, yes, you want a person that has business expertise. They've done the exact role. They are a retired CEO or a retired lawyer or a retired physician, and now that person is coaching you. But that's a different type of coaching than what I'm looking at when I'm talking about a typical executive coaching engagement. Interesting. How often, I mean, that was one thing I was going to ask you, how often do you coach somebody only on like executive or, or professional matters versus personal matters, or do you find that your coaching engagement for any given client often encompasses both? Interesting question. And so, and this goes back to something similar that you mentioned earlier. So as a coach, uh, I, my business is executive and leadership coaching. I give away personal development coaching, career coaching, life coaching, those th uh, three buckets uh, by servicing schools, churches, and, um, uh, prisons, you know, places like that, and uh, 
uh, those types of organizations, I give that service away as a, as a give back to the community. But when I'm working with my executive and leadership clients, typically those engagements are uh, at least six months uh, to 12 months. Uh, typically people are meeting twice a month with the, like a week in between. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you find that you often like migrate to discussions about what's going on in someone's personal life, even though it, it's, it, it's really supposed to be focused on their work performance. Ah, sorry. Yes. No worries. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you you end up coaching the entire person, right? Because it's in, it, the, the person's personal life and their professional life are inextricably linked. In fact, I'll never forget the words of one female executive when she was interviewing me to decide if she was going to hire me to become her executive coach, she said, Eddie, I'm going to tell you things that I can't tell my husband. And that was early on in my coaching career. And I have never forgotten those words because that underscores just the, the, the power of the executive coaching relationship and the dynamic that unfolds. The executive has a space, a safe harbor where they, they can't talk to their board of directors. They can't talk to someone on the staff, right? They're supposed to have all the answers. Right, exactly. <laughs> so they have this safe space where they can be themselves. It can be raw and they can you know get answers and get solutions and have that sounding board. And in some cases, that person that brings a little bit of education into the space for them, brings the university to them uh, if need be. So yes, there is things that are affecting the executive's ability to perform at a high level. You know, my experience has been, and I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before when we've chatted, my experience has been, you know, off and on the last, I don't know, probably 12 years, I've worked with an executive coach. I've actually worked with a couple different people. And um, I completely agree with everything you've said. Obviously, you're telling it from the side of being the coach, but being the person who is coached, I definitely feel like when I'm working with a coach that we're, we've created a sacred space. And it's in the context of that relationship where, yes, you see what you do well, you see things that you can improve, but to get to that place, you often have to really go to a place internally within you where you see things and you admit to things in terms of, for example, the way you approach particular people or circumstances that if you don't share that with your coach, then you are not able to get the breakthroughs that you're really looking for in the first place. Absolutely. the It's a transformational hour for some people. Uh, I should say for many people. <laughs> I mean, because you enter into that zone, that space and everything, the the, the guard, the, the, the bravado, all of that falls in that hour to your point. And you get to a space that sometimes that client has not let themselves get to until that very moment. And it's a part of the process of the tools that the coach is using to unfold and make that moment happen. I did a training not long ago. Uh, where I was working with the top executive coach in the world, she, uh, the top female coach in the world, Marsha Reynolds. And one of the things that Marsha said is that uh, when moving from uh, different levels of the, of the coaching credential process, she said mastery is not about more skill. Mastery is about deepening presence with the client. And I just let that simmer for a bit and I thought about it. 
Because the gift of true presence, where you are listening to a client, you are asking the right questions, playing back to the client what they've said, and other techniques that are used in that process, it, it, it truly is, to your word earlier, it's a sacred time and a sacred space. Eddie, our half hour is up, believe it or not. Um, as we wrap up this first part of our really incredible interview, do you have any final thoughts you would like to share with our listeners and where can they find you? I am everywhere on social media. So wherever you look, you'll find it. <laughs> and I have personally Eddie experienced Turner. that. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. My I know where to is- find you. I, I know where to find you on every social media platform. <laughs> Thank you, Tina. My website is Eddie Turner LLC. And from there, you'll have links to the social media sites where I'm found. But literally, if you type Eddie Turner uh, into any search engine or any of the uh, social media uh, tools that you use, uh, you'll find me in my resources. And uh, if anyone is interested, uh, let me know. And if you direct message me on social media uh, or email me and let me know that you heard me on the Paradigm Shift podcast of Tina Martini's then I will send you a free copy of my uh, digital copy of my book. Awesome. And we are going to talk in our next session about the book that you've published and the book that is underway, as well as a bunch of other topics. So looking forward to continuing our conversation, Eddie. Thank you, Tina. I look forward to talking about that as well. And uh, thank you for helping me to relive the reason why I had my own paradigm shift as I moved from one industry into another. It was so great to talk about that. And I look forward to the next half hour. Thank you, Tina. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed part one of our conversation with Eddie Turner and that you will join us next week for part two of our conversation. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.